0: One of the joys of Christmas is memories. When you're very young, the memories of the previous Christmas fire the imagination and the expectations of the next Christmas. When you're an adult, the memories aren't so much about the stuff as they are about the people, the events. And even in memory and anticipation, The food. In my own case, there's a couple of items that shout to me it's the holidays. A particular cranberry jello salad with apple bits and red grapes, ribbon fudge. Chocolate, peanut butter, right? And finally, most importantly, a candy I've known as Scotcharoos, which I've had every Christmas, I'm suspecting possibly in utero. <laughs> For those unacquainted, I pity you first of all, you have my sincere condolences. A concoction of rice cereal, peanut butter, corn syrup and covered in a blessed mixture of chocolate and butterscotch chips melted together. Yes, I am very hungry right now. For some reason my wife has not made them until this morning. I have suspicions as to why that's the case. But this isn't for personal counseling, so we'll move on. You know, the joy of the holidays, there's a contagion in that. And I think it should be that way. I think there ought to be anticipation. Uh, you know, whether it's the... Uh, so i got to know. So, how many of you do your Christmas opening of gifts, that whole thing, on Christmas morning? You're full-blown traditionalists. Okay, this is intriguing. How many Christmas Eve people do we have? Now, some of you folks got no self-control whatsoever. <laughs> or I've got half a congregation of grinches in here. I'm not I'm assuming the rest of you if I just use the generic term other. Is that okay? A mystery wrapped in an enigma. Anticipation. And of course, part of the anticipation is not just the food. It's not just the presents. I mean, there's things especially that surround church life, Christmas sermons or children's Christmas programs. By the way, our kids did a great job uh, this year. It was so much fun to see that. nativity scenes, the music, carols that are sung. And In some ways, what an astonishing thing. In fact, I want to quote from one of my new favorite preachers, some fellow named Covington. Um, As he talked about the things we do at Christmas, and he said, I think there's one that we do every year that's strange, stranger than most, singing, singing Christmas hymns. And that's because the songs we sing aren't meant to be snug, cozy, feel-good songs. They're meant to be disruptive. They're declarations that the world as we know it is coming to an end, that America itself is going to be dissolved and remembered no more. In fact, I think the goal of Advent is disruption. The goal of Advent is to create turmoil. Why? Because the goal of Advent is the establishing of a kingdom. It's the coming of the king to claim what is his. It's the kingdom that brings an end to all other kingdoms. In other words... Advent is the declaration of war. Christ is the rightful king who has come to triumph over all earthly kings. History isn't headed toward a democracy. History is headed toward monarchy, kingdom. The goal of Advent is God setting up his kingdom to fully rectify his kingship where it was lost in the fall. Now last time, Pastor Willis talked to us about the hope of Advent. Today, I would direct your attention, if you will, to the goal of Advent. For a moment, think with me about nativity scenes, and all of them have the same elements. I'm always amused by the story of the pastor as a day or so after Christmas and he knew it was time to take the nativity scene down, and he was hoping that the team who put it up would come get it, and he glanced out and noticed as he was pulling up to the church that baby Jesus was missing. And he was extraordinarily concerned. He didn't know what had happened. Um, and then he went in the church. He didn't know, Do you call the police for this? And he glances out, and he sees a kid in the neighborhood pulling a red wagon, with baby Jesus in the wagon and uh, he strolls out says you got baby Jesus in the wagon he said sure well where'd you get him well I got him from the church well why'd you do that well I made a promise about a week before Christmas I promised Jesus if I got a little red wagon for Christmas the first thing I'd do is take him for a ride around the block that's exactly what I'm doing I'm done now I'll put him back Part of our nativity scenes include the wise men, or the three kings, and that's what we look at this morning, but please know, my friend, it is extraordinarily unlikely that the visit of the the magi, the wise men, was at the nativity. All things being equal, this is sometime later, months likely. As Pastor Willis showed us last time in those first, that first chapter of Matthew, that God dwells among His people, identifies with His people, reigns with His people. That's the heart of Advent. Today we focus on the goal as we focus on the Magi, the wise men. See the danger this time of year with all of the memory, with all of the fun, with all of the stuff that are they're good things, please understand I'm not calling them bad things, But the danger is we become sentimental rather than serious. And this ought to make us serious. The goal of Advent is the king reigning in his kingdom. And the emphasis in that first chapter of Matthew on kingship carries through into the second chapter. Bear in mind again... When Matthew writes this, there are no chapter headings, there are no verse divisions, he's just writing a straight narrative of what happened. These things are to be seen together. So the first thing we see is seeking the king. Seeking the king, verses 1 through 8. It begins with what you could call distant seekers. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men, behold, magi from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. So what do we make of the magi? Well, let me point a couple of things out. We don't told that there were three. We make an assumption based on the gifts three. They bring gifts. We see in Psalm 7210, part of the tradition from Psalm 7210, May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba bring him gifts. Traditionally named Melchior, Balthazar, and Caspar. That ostensibly one came from India, one from Egypt, and one from Greece. Subsequently baptized by St. Thomas. And again, this is all supposition, folks. We we can't do much with this other than convey what we read from history. Their bones were discovered by St. Helena and deposited in the church of St. Sophia in Constantinople and later transferred to Milan and finally to the great cathedral of Cologne. Now, I know you say, pastor, we're not Catholic, we don't get it. It's all right, it won't hurt you to learn a little something this morning, all right? Some of you are kind of on the edge being good this year, so a little extra work on history can't hurt For many Christians, the holiday season will not end until the twelfth day of Christmas known as the Feast of Epiphany or Three Kings Day. It is known in uh, Spain and Latin America, El Dia de los Reyes, celebrated on January the 6th. We don't know where they're from. may have been from Arabia, Persia, or Babylon. Could... Could that be? Possibly. But here's some things that I think might help. Where did they get the idea and where did they get this intensity of pursuing a king of a foreign people? From whence does this come? May it, may it be that during the diaspora, during the time that the Jews are scattered under judgment that they, their predecessors, had heard of promises of a Messiah from these Jews in exile? Could it be their successors to the Magi mentioned in the book of Daniel, where Daniel is counted among those who interpret dreams, who had great wisdom? Read Daniel 1, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better. Then all the magicians and enchanters that were in his kingdom, or Daniel 2.2, 2. the king commanded the magicians, enchanters, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans, be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king. They were interpreters of dreams. By the time of Jesus' birth, the word magi referred to those who interpreted dreams, had visions, studied astrology, and took an interest in books about the future. I often wonder if this is not some residual influence from Daniel and his companions that was carried on in Babylon and Persia. Sometimes seekers are found where you least expect them. Nobody was anticipating these guys coming from the east. It's a reminder, J.C. Ryle tells us, we must never look around the earth and say hastily, all is barren. The grace of God is not tied to places and families. The Holy Spirit can lead souls to Christ without the help of any outward means. Men may be born in dark places of the earth like these wise men, and yet like them be made wise unto salvation. However they got it, they got it. And it got them there. When I hear the stories often of missionaries who go to places that have been unreached, how often have we heard stories told of them having some notion of some kind of salvation, some kind of deliverer, something that somehow had prepared them for those who came with the message of the Christian gospel. Well, what about the stars? And by the way, I hate to say this, but the carol of the first Noel is inaccurate when it says they looked up and saw a star shine in the east beyond them far because the text says they came from the east so the star had to be in the west. I could take this a step further if I was into deconstruction and colonial issues and say that's a mark of western colonialism since it's to our east, that's how it has to be portrayed for everybody, right? And thus we're terrible, horrible people here in western civilization. That's all stupid, but I just couldn't resist. We don't know what it was. Could it have been a comet? Could it be the location of Jupiter called the king planet? A conjunction at that time of Jupiter and Saturn in the sign of the fish. I've read all of these. Some other luminary in the sky. I I don't know. The text doesn't bother to tell us. Personally, I wonder if it's not just a supernatural occurrence may have actually been a manifestation of the Shekinah glory of God that led them there. Because it says it was right over Bethlehem. Maybe. Whatever the case, as Spurgeon said, an unusual luminary was understood by them to indicate the birth of the coming man for whom many in all lands were looking Stars might guide us if we were willing to be led. I love that phrase. Stars might guide us if we were willing to be led. Lord Jesus, make everything speak to me concerning thee that I may be truly led to life. This is extraordinary, is it not? From the nations come the Magi. Where is he? We want to worship him. Now this distant seeker then leads to disturbed seekers. Because when they show up, King Herod hears basically, his, this is the message, congratulations, King Herod, on the birth of your son, the new king. And there's no new king. Now, Herod had sons. Herod, by the way, Herod the Great, the beginning of the Herodian dynasty, who succeeded the Hasmoneans, was an awful human being. And I do mean awful. He lived from about 73 B.C. to around 3 or 4 B.C. He'd risen to power under the Romans. He was a capable administrator, orator. He was a good military tactician. He was also paranoid, had one of his wives and at least two of his sons assassinated, executed. In fact, he was so universally hated, I've mentioned this before, he gave an order just prior to his death that they gather up all the priests and put them in a coliseum so that when he died, the soldiers were supposed to kill all the priests so there would be weeping in Israel because he knew nobody in the entire land would weep for his death. Thankfully, that order was never carried out. But it's not just Herod. Look at the end of verse 3. All Jerusalem with him. They're concerned as well. Why is Jerusalem disturbed? You would think they would be delighted. But they'd seen Herod's paranoid tantrums before and they'd grown accustomed to the status quo. Let's not stir anything up. And the distant seekers and the disturbed seekers then lead us to what I'll call the non seekers. Did you ever read verses four and following and scratch your head just a little bit? And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it's written by the prophet, and they quote from the prophet. Do you get the question? understand what's so disturbing? I've got news for you folks. To the best of our knowledge, Herod never asked a single theological question in his entire life. He was not Jewish. He was from Edomia. He was an Edomite. He did not share the same history. He did not share the same promises. Why, whenever Herod shows up to the chief priests, the scribes, the teachers of the law, and starts asking about the Messiah, did they not say, so king, what's up? You know something we don't know? They didn't care. They too were stuck in that moment. Folks, here's the frightening thing to bear in mind. Scripture in the head doesn't mean there's grace in the heart. It's not always those who have the greatest gospel privilege who give Christ the most honor. John 1, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So we have the seekers of the king. And I think that leads us to the next part I'd call seeing the king. Now Herod tells them, you go find him, bringing me word that I can come and worship him as well. And at verse 9, they listen to the king. They go on their way. Behold the star they'd seen when it rose, went before them, came to rest over the place where the child was. My brothers and sisters, hear this, all who truly seek Him find Him. Always, always, always those who seek are first those who are sought. You didn't choose me, I chose you. However He gets it done, and the Lord has extraordinarily wondrous and at times subtle, unique ways of bringing people to Himself. They find him, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, they come into the house and they see the child with Mary mother, they fall down and worship. Can I point out that not only all who seek him truly find him, all who truly see him worship him. The wise men believed in Christ when they'd never seen him. But that wasn't all. They believed in him when the scribes and the Pharisees were unbelieving. But again, that's not all. I'm quoting again from J.C. Ryle here. They believed in him when they saw him a little infant on Mary's knees and worshipped him as king. This was the crowning point of their faith. They saw no miracles to convince them. They heard no teaching. Mm. To persuade them. They beheld no signs of divinity or greatness to overawe them. They saw nothing but an infant, helpless and weak and needing a mother's care like any one of ourselves. Yet when they saw that infant, they believed they saw the divine Savior of the world. Their gifts are pointers. Gold, the Medal of Kings. When archaeologist opens the tomb of the ancients, if he finds gold, he knows he's dealing with a monarch. They had come searching for the king of the Jews. Incense, the fragrance, burned and used in the worship of God. Frankincense was used in the censer when God was worshipped in the tabernacle, myrrh. Myrrh was used in the crucifixion and offered to Jesus on the cross. Matthew, excuse me, Mark 15, 23 They offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. It was also a fragrant rosin that was used to prepare bodies for burial, mentioned when Joseph of Arimathea prepares Jesus' body for burial. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. It was a symbol of death. I know. Preacher, this is Christmas. We want a cradle. We want angels singing. Shepherds wondering. We're even good with wise men showing up to worship. But why would you talk about death. Well, in the first chapter of Matthew, in verse 21, I read these words. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. Now Jesus is the Hellenized, the Greek version, if you will, of the name Yahshua. Yeshua. Jehovah saves. There had been other Joshuas. We read about him in the Old Testament. I dare say there were other Joshuas alive when Jesus was alive. But in his case, the profound meaning. You will call His name Jesus, for He will save His people from their sins." And then you get this stunning statement. The seekers after the shepherds, after the angels, the seekers are not the chief priests, it's not the people of Jerusalem, it's certainly not King Herod. The seekers are strangers, foreigners, whom we cannot name, can't even be for sure from whence they came, and brothers and sisters, that ought to encourage you. You don't have to be identified specifically, it's just that he came for his people. His people was more than Israel. His people were all his people from all the nations, the king has come. And the king saves his people by his dying. Yes, gold, frankincense, myrrh. Yes, you can attribute gold to kings and frankincense in the censer and offering and myrrh to death. But my friends, there's also an element here, I think as well, that shouts to us, Whether you looked at the tabernacle or whether you looked at the temple, first thing that would have stood out to you is gold. (laughs) Everywhere. Incense, yes. Myrrh, connected to death. What happened at the tabernacle? What happened at the temple? Death and sacrifice. This babe, this little one, is not just for our sentimental, warm feelings. This is the Savior who has come. Mary warned in the temple, a sword will pierce your own soul, for he's come for the rising and the falling of many. That symbol of death, that marker, reminds us, my friend, that the saving that has to happen for his people requires a savior who, yes, is the God-man on earth, but ultimately is the one who willingly dies as the substitute, raised from the dead, seated at the right hand of God. And what we celebrate today isn't the mere sentimentality of nativity. It is the glorious reality of this that is so stunningly, so stunningly overwhelming. God became man. John Piper said it this way, the Lord wields the universe to make His Son known and worshipped. <laughs> he draws these kings, these men coming to worship, the nascent picture of nations coming to the Christ. What are, Jesus, some of His final words to His disciples? Matthew 28, the same gospel, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The goal of Advent, my friend, is the king and his kingdom. And here's the nascent picture of the king. They come to worship him. Jerusalem didn't come to worship. Bethlehem didn't come to worship. Lowly shepherds came to worship because angels directed magi from the east come to worship and we're not sure of all other than the sign in the sky and they come to worship because the king turns the world upside down. Now you feel small, some of you, and insignificant and let me encourage you my friend, The Lord knows you, and he knows you by name, and the Son came for those unknown and insignificant. This my friend, the goal of Advent, the King has come, and the kingdom is here. Let's pray.